Well, a few weeks ago, I was perusing Facebook in my spare time. I know that's always a potentially dangerous thing to do, but I came across a picture that caught my attention. It was a picture with just a short little phrase on it, and perhaps you have seen it as well. It just said that. It said, let's be better humans. Let's be better humans. Now, in context, this was referring to the new year and and making goals and such, but what caught my attention about this phrase is just how ambiguous it is. What does it mean to be a better human? What does that actually look like? Does it mean eating and exercising better? Does it mean being more focused on your goals and your dreams? Does it just mean being nicer to other people, maybe reading more books, spending more time in nature, or even just living longer? What does this mean? I think we could probably come up with hundreds of different answers to this question, and I don't think we would all agree about our answers as well. See, the problem with this phrase is that you can't know what it means to be a better human until you first know what it means to be just a plain old regular human. And you know, there is a lot of confusion about that today. Perhaps it's something you've even questioned yourself. If you've ever looked yourself in the mirror and asked, who am I? Or maybe if you've ever looked out on the starry night and looked up into the sky and said, what's my purpose in life? Why am I here? If you've ever done that, then you've wondered what it means to be human. But you know, you don't find the answer to this question by by looking in the mirror. You don't find the answer to this question by going outside and staring up at the stars. The only way to learn what it means to be human is to go to the creator of humans. And thankfully, in his word, he has revealed to us who we are, what our purpose is, and how to become better humans. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning from Psalm chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, please turn there with me. If you did not bring a Bible this morning, there should be one, uh, a blue or a white one in one of the seats in front of you. And I believe Psalm 8 is on page 256. Psalm 8. And then if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, 
We pray now that you would send your spirit and speak to us through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this psalm, Psalm 8, as you see in the inscription, was written by King David. Now, not much is known about the exact situation of of the composition of this psalm, but many believe it was written at night. If you look at verse 3 there, we see that David's, he's looking into the sky, but he doesn't mention the sun, he mentions the moon and the stars. So it's probably nighttime, or at least it's probably a time where David's thinking about the, night, the time where he was outside. But look at what David says right after this, in verse 4. He asks, what is man? And so here we have King David doing exactly what you or I would do. He's sitting outside, he's gazing up into the stars, and essentially he's asking, what does it mean to be human? Why why am I here? Who am I? I think there's something comforting to know that we are not the first people in history to ask this question. I also think there's something comforting to know that, that God allows us to ask this question. God's not afraid of this question when we ask it. But also, I think God intends to give us an answer to this question. In fact, in the very next verse, David's going to explore what it means to be a human. In a sense, David's going to answer his own question. But I don't think David's answer actually begins in verse 5. I believe his answer begins back in verse 1. Look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, in all the earth. Now, you might be thinking, well, what does that have to do with knowing what it means to be a human? It doesn't say anything about humans, and of course, you are right, but we cannot truly understand ourselves until we first understand the one who made us, and there's a reason for that. You see, human beings, we have a propensity to lie to ourselves, We are constantly telling ourselves and basically anyone who will listen to us that we are much better than we actually are. We ignore our weaknesses, we highlight our strengths, we forget our failures, and we cherish and remember our victory. We are actually terrible judges of ourselves. But If we can take our focus off of us, we can turn outward and we can compare ourselves to God, then we can begin to see who we truly are. John Calvin, he says it this way, no one ever attains clear knowledge of self until he has first gazed upon the face of the Lord and then turns back to look upon himself. Deeply rooted in all of us is an arrogance which persuades us that we are righteous, truthful, wise, and holy. Only clear evidence to the contrary will convince us otherwise. But we will feel, will not feel such conviction if all we do is look upon ourselves and not upon the Lord. So here we see that the first way that we become better humans, more in line with who we actually are, is that we need to behold the majesty of God. Behold the majesty of God. And this is what we actually see David doing in the first four verses of Psalm 8. He's meditating 
on the magnificence and the splendor of God. So go back to verse 1 for a second here. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, in Hebrew, that first Lord, in all caps, is Yahweh. It's referring to God's covenant name that he made with Israel, that he revealed to Moses. But that second lowercase Lord there is the plural possessive form of the word Adonai. And it means master or ruler or king. And so David here is saying that Yahweh is the one who's in charge. Yahweh is the the ruler. He's the king of all. And his majesty is not only known on earth. Look what it says. It goes all the way to heaven. The whole universe is full of the glory of God. All of creation cannot contain our God. The theological term for this is transcendence. We worship a transcendent God. He is above us. He is is above us. He is so far beyond us that we can't even comprehend. And I think that's actually what David is driving at in verse 2, though it might not first seem that way. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, there's some debate about what this exactly means. You might remember that Jesus quoted this in Matthew 21 when he's entering uh, Jerusalem and the children are calling out, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, blessed is the one who comes in, uh, in the name of Son of David. And so Jesus quotes that to defend the children's right to praise him. But I think the basic point here in Psalm 8 seems to be that God is so great, God is so wonderful and transcendent that he can use even the weakest of the weak to stop his enemies. And in this case, it's children, it's infants, it's babies. God doesn't need to use a display of great power to defeat them. I think of this uh, in my own life. I, I don't know if this has ever actually happened, but I think of this as like standing over an ant. An ant is in front of you. And just imagine that the ant is somehow confronting you. In that situation, there's no question about who's more powerful. There's no question who is greater. And I don't need to use all of my strength to show that. It's self-evident. I could destroy an ant with my pinky finger. As gross as that might be, I could do it. It wouldn't be difficult. It would be quite easy. And I think that's what's being said here in verse 2. God is so much greater than his enemies. He barely needs to move his pinky finger. He can use the weakest of things to thwart his foes. And that's possible because God made the entire universe with just his pinky finger. Look at verse 3. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. God made solar systems with his fingers. He fashioned them in his hands. Creating the universe was not difficult for God. He spoke and he came into existence. He pointed and stars and planets and galaxies, they went wherever he directed. 
And so David here, he's looking up into the night sky. He's considering the majesty of God who rules over the universe, and he is overwhelmed. And as his view of God goes up, his view of himself goes down. And that's what we see in verse 4. He asks, what is man then? If this is what you are like, God, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. When we consider the majesty of God, we should feel completely humbled and unworthy. What are tiny, insignificant humans like us compared to this transcendent God that we see in the scriptures? One of my favorite comedians is a guy named Brian Regan. Maybe you're familiar with him or not. But he has this skit about how we all tend to be me monsters. We, all, we always tend to let somebody finish a story and then we're like, wait, now me, now me. I'm going to trump your story. I'm going to say a better story. We always direct the attention towards ourselves. And in the skit, Regan imagines what it would be like to be one of the first men who walked on the moon. And he says, this would kind of be like the ultimate trump card. No matter what you've done in your life, I could always come back and say, yeah, well, I've walked on the moon. It's a little bit better than what you've done. And so what can you compare to that? That's his point. How could you compare to that? The person would be immediately humbled. Well, I actually think that's a good example of how we should feel when we look at the majesty of God. What could we do? that would compare to what God has done in any way. All of our achievements, the things that we are prone to boast about are nothing when we remember him. How much money you make, how attractive you are, how many places you've been, how many friends you have, all of these things are totally insignificant in the presence of God. You see how foolish human boasting looks? In the presence of God, it doesn't make any sense. As R.C. Sproul says, the clearest sensation that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. That is, when we are in the presence of God, we are humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. When we see God, it humbles us and totally levels the playing field. There's no more room for boasting. So the first step to becoming a better human is to behold the majesty of God and confess your unworthiness. The second step is to behold the majesty of man. To behold the majesty of man. Now, you might be thinking... Majesty is not the first word I would pick to describe mankind. And that's understandable. If you think about the, the mundane daily existence of your life, majesty feels a little bit hard to believe. Just think about it. Think of the number of things you do every single day. Is brushing your teeth, is watching TV, is walking from room to room, or driving in your car, or sleeping. Are these things particularly majestic? Is that the word you would describe them with? Or, or even go a step further, think of the unbelievable acts of evil that have been carried out throughout history by human beings. Majestic 
doesn't quite seem appropriate. Or think of the biblical description of mankind, that we are made from dust. We are creatures of the earth who share many characteristics with the animals, even much of the same DNA. So in one sense, it feels that we are beastly rather than majestic. Or even consider what we've already talked about, how God is so much greater than us and that we feel insignificant. And so I think as we consider these things, we might be tempted to think that human beings are worthless rather than majestic. Perhaps this is something you've even thought about yourself. I am worthless. But this is only half the story. There's more that God is going to tell us. Those things are true. You are unworthy before God. But it's only half the story. Look back at verse 4. David again says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Notice that David isn't asking here, how could God care for us? He's not saying we're so insignificant and worthless that it's not possible that God could care for us. This is basically what famous physicist and atheist Stephen Hawking has said. He says it like this. The human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among a hundred billion galaxies. We are so insignificant that I can't believe the whole universe exists for our benefit. From Hawking's perspective, human beings are worthless. We're nothing, nothing significant about us. But from David's perspective, human beings are of immense value because God himself, the creator of the universe, cares for us. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you do care for him? We have value because the infinitely valuable one cares about us. But you know, it gets even better. Look at what David says next in verse 5. Yet you, God, have made him, that is mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. In Hebrew, that phrase heavenly beings is actually only one word. And it's a word you might be familiar with. It's the word Elohim. It's most often in the Bible used as a reference to God. And I believe that's what it means here as well. God has made human beings a little bit lower than himself. We see this from the very beginning, Genesis 1.26. Then God, and that word there is Elohim. Then Elohim said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You see, we are not only cared for by God, we are like God. God. We are made in his image. We are the pinnacle of creation, the last and greatest of God's work. The image of God on our souls is the crown of glory and honor which has been placed upon every human being who has ever lived. And therein lies our majesty. We alone can reflect God and his glory to all of the universe. And that's exactly what God has actually called us to do. David continues on, verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. So as God's image-bearing representatives, we are to rule over the earth. We have been given dominion and authority. 
And we are meant to exercise this power through the spreading of God's glory, and thus our good, to the ends of the earth. We are meant to benevolently rule the creation under our benevolent creator. And this majestic calling is the birthright of every human being who has ever lived. We are far from worthless. God created us in his image. He has given us a purpose and he cares deeply about us. You have value because God says you have value. God is the determiner of value. And you and I have no right to say that something doesn't have value which God says does. So the second step to becoming a better human is to behold the majesty of man. Behold it both within yourself and also within every single person that you meet. Well, the third and final step to becoming a better human is to behold the majesty of the God-man. So far, we've been talking about what humans are by nature. Because we are creatures made by a transcendent God, we are unworthy. But because we are made in the image of this God, we have worth, we have value. Now, you and I did nothing to gain either of those things. We have done nothing, they were just, they are a part of what it means to be a human. It's often said that we are human beings, not human doings. And that's really, really important. We are human beings, not human doings. Because when you begin to look at what we've done, it doesn't look so good. Each and every one of us has rebelled against God. We have rejected his rule over our lives. Each and every one of us has tried to unseat God from the throne. We said, God, I'd prefer to be God rather than being like God. We have lived as if we were in charge instead of him. And because of this, the image of God on our souls has been profoundly scarred. And our unworthiness has grown to an infinite degree. The Bible tells us because of what, we done, what we've done, human beings no longer live under the benevolent reign of God. Instead, we find ourselves under the curse and judgment of God. Because of our sins, each one of us is justly deserving of death. And yet the good news of the gospel, the, the, what the whole Bible, including Psalm 8, is pointing to, the good news of the gospel is that God has not abandoned human beings. God would have had every right to forever forsake us, to leave us because what we have done. He could have done that, and yet that's not what he chooses to do. Instead, he chose to come after us. He chose to become one of us, that he might save us from our sins by dying the death that we deserve. You see, Psalm 8 is not just about you and me. It's also about Jesus. Look at how the author of Hebrews interprets this psalm. This is Hebrews 2, 7 through 9. You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, you left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. 
But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. When we look at mankind, we don't see the majesty that we might expect. We don't see human beings ruling over the earth. We don't see everything, including death, being put under his feet or being subjected to him. Instead, we see Jesus. We see God become man. In his incarnation and death, made a little bit lower than the angels. But in his resurrection and ascension, crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is the perfect human being. He is what we were meant to be. He perfectly fulfilled God's calling on his life. He never rebelled against God's rule. And yet, he tasted death for everyone. He died as a man that man might receive the grace of God that we might be saved, that we might be redeemed, that we might be transformed. And this is ultimately where we find both our worth and our unworthiness. Tim Keller, he says it like this, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, and yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Human beings are unlike anything else in creation. We are utterly unique. We are like the animals, but also above them. We are like God, but also below him. And every single day, we are moving always in one of those two directions. We are either moving up or we are moving down. If you persist in your rebellion against God's rule, if you continue to try and be God instead of accepting your place under God, then you will become more and more like an animal. But if you humble yourself, if you confess your sins, if you ask Jesus to forgive you, if you give your life to him, then you will become more and more like God. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So are you being a better human? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. There is no one like you. You are utterly unique, and yet you have made us in your image. What a privilege that is, Father. Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize how unworthy we are, and how much value we do have. Lord, I pray that we would look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.